a blessed New Year to you guys. Happy New Year. That's right, on the very day that it is. And I want to tell you that you guys have to put up with a rough sermon voice today. But I'm thankful to the Lord that I have a voice. Because when I woke up this morning, I go... So, um, had I tried to sing, I'm sure I wouldn't have anything left. So, thankful uh, for all those voices that came in and did the job. But uh, anyway, as we start a new year, we are starting another new book. And we did 1 John, and then we went on to 2 John, if you remember. And then we went into 3 John. Well, you'll never guess what we're doing today. 4 John! <laughs> Thank you. You're kind. <laughs> the book of Philippians is what we're doing today. And uh, so we get to kick off uh, this new year. And uh, it's uh, the epistle to the Philippians. And I think it can be very edifying to us as um, we think about freshening our attitudes uh, for the year and our lives. We look to a new year. We're reminded of the state of our nation, the state of the world, and the sinfulness that uh, just abounds. It's a bleak-looking picture sometimes when you hear the news that's on uh, television and radio and the Internet and newspapers and magazines and everywhere. And uh, sometimes it's almost like despair uh, it's almost like depression. You know, it, it can almost bog you down when you hear all of this bad news that's coming out. And you know, it, it is bad news. It's a sinful world. And uh, we shouldn't be too surprised at that. Um, but we should never think that we have no hope. As Christians, we have all the hope that we ever need. But we know we see a downward spiral. And it seems to get worse and worse in a sinful world. But we can rejoice. We know, we know what true rejoicing is. We know what happiness is, at least as far as being blessed in the Lord. And so when we think about the things that are going on, we have to look to the Lord and look also at our inward attitude and how are we responding with, with the inward attitude that we should have. We should not even flinch at all this because the Scripture says joy is present constantly because he says what rejoice and again I say rejoice rejoice always just constantly despite the circumstances I'm rejoicing today even though we have a lot of people out either sick and some are traveling and um, I'm thinking a lot of you are battling some of this I don't know the same voice thing too and uh, boy you know miss uh, some of the people we haven't seen in a few weeks have been out and so uh, at the same time, we say we continue to rejoice as we worship. Thank you guys for, for being here. Um, the book of Philippians is dominated by the theme of joy. It will constantly be bringing out how uh, joy is to be uh, done in the church. So this can encourage us in the times that we live in to uh, rejoice. Such a time as this, right? Such a time as it. It is that we live in. So we, I think we can be illumined by this. We can ed, uh, be edified by this little tremendous letter. Uh, four chapters. And uh, again, uh, another little book that um, if you take the time this week, um, do a chapter a day. And in four days you will read Philippians. Or take uh, 
take yourself a half hour out and uh, just read through the book of Philippians. It probably won't take you half an hour, but it's a good one to go through. It will be encouraging. It is known as the Epistle of Joy. And in this letter, it's not just uh, joy that we're going to see. We're going to see the sovereignty of God. By the time you get through the first six verses, you're already going to see that and His God's sovereignty. Uh, when you get into chapter 2, you see the humiliation of Jesus Christ, the epitome of humility. And, uh, of course, I, there are some great verses in here uh, in Philippians that we all know and we love. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Remember that one? And uh, then there's another one. To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's even better. Get to be with Him. For to you it has been granted to not only believe in Him, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. There's another one in Philippians. How about in Philippians where it says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Like that. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's in Philippians. I press on toward the calling, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How about be anxious for nothing? Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. We've heard of all of these verses, haven't we? The peace of God, which surpasses understanding, all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Those are just a few verses that we're all familiar with, heard of many times. How about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is a good repute, think on these things. Oh, how about this one? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Out of Philippians. Wow, it's loaded. So anyway, we can draw upon those whenever the time comes in our lives that we need those. Those are great, encouraging Scripture. The whole of Scripture, all of Scripture, is about rejoicing, a true rejoicing. It's about being joyful people in the sight of God that honors Him. So rejoice. Um little book, I'll give a little bit of an introduction. It seems like every week we've been going through introductions of books, and I've made them kind of short, but it's good to have a little bit of a background, a little bit of setup, because as we go through Philippians, then it, it will uh, help us understand how they come into play. This was written about uh, 30 years um, after the, the death of Christ, somewhere around 61 A.D. It was written probably from Rome while Paul was imprisoned, which was quite frequently, uh, not too odd for that to happen, uh, prison epistle here. And so when you think about that, get that. He's in prison, and yet his theme is rejoicing. You think he would have been complaining and grumbling and saying, I can't get the Lord's work done because of the place where I'm at. But he rejoices in, uh, despite his circumstances. And that is what joy is about. Um, Hey, is my voice holding out so far? Yeah. We doing okay? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You guys are really patient. Uh, last night, I think my voice was even lower. Philippi, that's the name of the city. And uh, not too hard to guess, that was named after a man by the name of Philip. It was Philip II. You can say, who was that? Well, he was actually the father of Alexander the Great. 
And so if you know about Alexander the Great, that great Greek empire, well, this was all set up uh, back before his time. It became a Roman colony. Eventually, by the time we uh, get to this letter here, it's very much like Rome. It's almost like being in the city of Rome. Uh, a lot of times when you have cities out there, they'll, they'll become Roman and they'll resemble Rome in, in a lot of ways, but this one sure did um, by its laws, the citizenship, uh, the taxes, the language that was used, all the customs, the government, and you would think you were in a, a city of Rome. So they all enjoyed all the rights that uh, Rome did. And where it was located was very strategic. Um, it's actually what we know as Europe. Uh, it's right at the precipice between the east and the west. All the, the roads, the Appian Way, you think of the Appian Way, or the Ignition Highway. Um, sorry there. Uh, you have Asia, you have Europe, the east and the west, and the Ignition Highway went right through the city. What an impact you can make when you have a major, major highway go through this area. And uh, so this is where Paul started a church at. And so Paul knows exactly where to go when he starts these churches. There wasn't one there. Everywhere he went and where he started, he didn't build on anybody else's. He started new churches. And so it's fascinating how he picks these, uh, these places that will then in turn expand as they go to the smaller towns around. Um, so anyway, the key to understanding about the gospel is that the gospel has to move west. That's where God designed it. What would have happened? Where would we be at had the gospel gone east rather than emphasizing going west? Interesting, isn't it? Would we be like the Chinese have been? Anyway, a good place to... Uh, maybe get a good background handle is to turn to Acts 16. This would be the place to turn to to finding out about the origin of this church. So let's turn to Acts 16. probably uh, recognize what was going on here when we when we read this. Starting at verse 6. It was Timothy and Paul and Silas. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Huh. They were forbidden. They couldn't go there. So after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So they couldn't go there. Huh. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. But when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Well, they didn't really have anywhere else to go, did they? And they sees the vision, and Paul has confirmed that that's where they need to go. That's where they're going to go. This is God's providence and His sovereignty here. So, putting out the sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And on the day following to Neapolis, and from there 
to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. Remember what we were saying earlier? And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to Riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So there is how it gets started. There's the convert. It was it was some ladies. They didn't have a big enough synagogue um, for the Jews to be to have a synagogue. They didn't have enough men. Like they needed ten men to uh, have a synagogue. So there are these ladies that go out by the, the river and they, they pray. And Paul comes upon them and we already have the first people there in this church. Then, I'm not going to read, but you'll remember the story about Paul and Silas. They're put in jail. And they're put in jail. Um, there was a slave girl, a spirit of divination, and um, what happened there is because of the slave girl eventually quit being the impact for the enemy, Satan, um, what happened is that she was no longer that kind of influence. And you like to think that she might have become a Christian too. Well, anyway, because of that, guess what happens? You have Paul and Silas. They're put in jail. And we know that they were singing on into the midnight. And they're they're chained and they're in uh, they're in stocks. And, you know they can't they can't get out and uh, their their feet are fastened. What are they going to do? They're in prison. There's nothing they can do but they could sing, so they can move their mouths. And I'm telling you, I think they're preaching the gospel as they're singing. They're putting in precious key words to what. The gospel is about as they sing. Songs and hymns and spiritual songs made an impact and we know that the, uh, all of a sudden the earthquake happened and as a result the jailer said, oh no, he thought probably all of them had gone. They were all still there and he was ready to die. He thought they were going to even kill him because if you're a guard and you're the, the ones who are in prison to get out, guess what happens? You lose your life. You're responsible. And, uh, of course, the Philippian jailer said what? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What's the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So you have Lydia. Here you have the Philippian jailer. And uh, these are people who were right in on that first part of the church. And I think that's quite a history. Um. The letter to the Philippians, to get back to the, what we were talking about earlier, he starts as he sends a letter back to them. That's the history. And he sends letters out to churches that are around the Mediterranean. And as he writes to Philippi, where he had started a church and he knew them, he emphasizes this joy because they know, okay, he's going through a tough time. He's in jail. 
But they have some persecution coming from the outside. They have problems on the inside of the church. They have some pretty tough circumstances themselves. So he's going to show what true happiness is. It's easy to have happiness in good times. But what about happiness or true joy whenever we're not having good times? And that's what Paul wants to do. And he expects all believers to be able to respond to this. And so you have people that were converted from different backgrounds, different traditions, different cultures, and and this strategic location, and people from all over. And here he's saying, hey, we need to work together. And um, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, without grumblings. Everything that you do, don't complain about it. What does that insinuate? They're probably complaining, groaning about it. Even in this this uh, letter of joy, I have to think that they were doing some of the things that we were, that we are, that we tend to do. We tend to complain. We tend to uh, murmur. But uh, Paul says, hey, stop that. Uh, you have in chapter 4, verse 2, I beseech you, Iodius and Sintich, that they may be of the same mind in the Lord. So there's some kind of contention there, some kind of fighting. And Paul's saying, hey, we've got to work together. Let's come together, work together for this call of Christ. And near the end he says, rejoice. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. So that's, that's the key. Um, thing is, happiness. The happiness that we think of. It's like soap in your hands. You're in the shower. And the thing just squirts out. You try to pick it up. Then you finally get it. You know, and squirts out again. It's slick. And that's what can happen when we're basing our lives on happiness. You know, I'm not happy right now. Things aren't going the way that I want. And um, so therefore, that's why Paul calls for joy even in times when they're not working that way. Happiness can escape us. And that's why Paul says rejoice. Ninety-six times in the New Testament we'll run across this word. And it's dealing with despite the circumstances. Uh, It's having a deep down confidence in the Lord. Deep down. There can be turmoil all around us. I mean everywhere. And we can be pressured. Anxiety can can be tremendous. And yet, that confidence is there. Let's look at Psalm chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. He puts gladness there. And he gives us peace. You know, we dwell in Him. How about chapter 16 of Psalms? Verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Do you pleasure in the Lord? Yeah, that's, that's what life is about. Pleasuring in Him. In him. Uh, he is a God of pleasure. And uh, we can 
realize that His presence is with us constantly and we can have fullness of joy. may not look it on the outside, but inwardly, that's what should be happening. Look in John 15, verse 11. These are great promises, aren't they? Apply these passages to our lives, Lord. John 15, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's Jesus speaking there. Your joy may be made full. I'm telling you these things, right? That's about the vine and the branches. And if you'd realize that you are in Christ, you are relying on Him, you are uh, needing that sap, the very life of Him. And I'm telling you those things, Jesus says, so that you would have full joy. Do you take full joy in that? Good one to know. How about Romans 14, verse 17? For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Not those outward things. We, we need those. But here's what it really is. It's righteousness. We're righteous in Christ. We've been justified. And peace. We're no longer at war with Him. And joy in the Holy Spirit. When you're rejoicing, it's because of the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Even right now. How about... Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. And on. How about 1 John 1 4? These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, this is John writing about uh, the very word of life and that he'd seen, he testified about Christ and what he had heard, and he wanted them to have fellowship like he had fellowship in, uh, in God. And there's where our joy is at. We may be complete. Let's look at Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. There we go. He's going to keep us from stumbling. He's going to make us stand right in the presence of His very glory and we will be blameless with great joy. It's immense. So that's a little bit of theology of joy. We could continue on. And, and spend the rest of the day just on verses dealing with that. Those are great promises. And so, whenever everything starts going down around you, just go back to those scriptures. Think on those. All right, let's uh, let's go into the epistle. <laughs> After all that, let's go into uh, Philippians chapter one. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's as far as we're going to get today. You ready? There's a lot there. Paul and Timothy. Paul's writing. Uh, possibly using Timothy to pin this down. Paul uh, used a normal, conventional way when he wrote a letter. Just as when, it, uh, when we appealed uh, to the fact that John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 2nd uh, and 3rd John, little postcards, you know. And they would start out the same way anybody else would do when they wrote a letter. And it was simply writing down who the writer is. Good to know that, isn't it? Well, usually they'd have some kind of prayer after that. And, of course, we see that in verse 2. But he changes up some words than what would normally be in a, in a Roman letter. Um, so it's who they're writing to, you know, the addressee, and what you want for the addressee. And remember, John had uh, actually wanted uh, health and prosperity for uh, one of the people at uh, the church as he uh, addressed. Third uh, John, I think. Uh, they would have happiness. As we look down, we see, yeah, there's a normal conventional letter here, but it diverges from this uh, kind of conventional letter. He adds a couple of things. And that's really what kind of makes up our message here today. If you look in chapter uh, 3 of Philippians, as we're looking at Paul, and we're not going to take a lot of time on Paul here. We, we know quite a bit about him. But this is a great section dealing with where Paul was at in his walk, where he had been, and now where he is now and who he is. See, before he recognized himself for what he did. He did religiously. And uh, he had a lot of things to brag about, he thought. Uh, verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcise you today. Of the nation of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Boy, he thought he was quite, quite the stuff, wasn't he? When he was a Jew. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I think that pretty well defines Paul, doesn't it? We saw him before as Saul, and then we see him as Paul, having righteousness of Christ. So that's Paul. Paul and Timothy. Timothy, he's kind of like Paul's son in the faith. He was able to get with Timothy and teach him uh, the deep things of God. He discipled him. And he, uh, Paul felt very close to Timothy. And so, 
Uh, I think he had taught him very well. Timothy was very useful uh, to Paul in, in service to Christ. Um, go back to Acts 16. And verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So there's Paul and now Timothy teaming up. Look at verse 12. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So that's the gang that is with Paul that we see introduced in the first few verses. Uh, there's Timothy with him at Philippi. So when Paul writes a letter, they all know Paul, but they sure know Timothy too, don't they? Because he was with them. He made an impact. So we get to learn uh, a lot about Timothy, uh, in, even in Philippians. Look in chapter 2, verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. So, that's what he thought of Timothy. It was like, this is the right hand of Paul. He's so connected with Paul that uh, he knew the concern that he really had for the people there. They knew that too. Anyway, Paul lists Timothy right here in the first verse. That's pretty important. doesn't mean that Timothy is the author. Paul is the author of this with, of course, the Holy Spirit inspiring him. But Paul could be dictating this to Timothy. Maybe Timothy is pinning this down. Don't want to be dogmatic. Some suggest that. He's definitely a co-worker here. And he was with Paul at the time of this writing and so the Philippians are excited to know hey this is not only from Paul but this is Timothy too now the next word douloi or you might have bond servant or servant does anybody have slave there usually you don't see that translations don't use that but that's really what it is. Doulos uh, is, is slave. And that's a favorite term of Paul. He loves to identify himself as a slave. That sounds so backwards. And you can see when um, the translations were made in, uh, back in the King James time, um, that was kind of a touchy word. And um, so we, we, we get nicer terms, servants, bond servants that's pretty close but slave is accurate and that is what uh, Paul says he is he's a slave of the master when we have a Lord we are to serve him because it's all about him the slave 
serves the Master, our Lord Jesus Christ. If we could only see ourselves as slaves and rejoice in the fact that we have the great privilege of being a slave serving our Lord Christ. Good way to do it. He's not only Savior, but He's also Lord, isn't He? Anyway, um, if you look at some of Paul's letters, you think of Romans chapter 1, verse 1. How often do you see this? A lot. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. He's an apostle, but what does he first recognize himself? I'm a slave. In James, now there's not Paul this time, this is the half-brother of our Lord. And James says, James, a bondservant or slave, doulos, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James says that. You also see it in Second Peter. You also see it in Jude. And they're proud to say they're slaves. And back at that time, much of the population in the Roman Empire uh, was uh, in the condition of being slaves. Most of the people were that. Very many of them. And so they knew what that was. If you go back to Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, we might be able to help uh, ourselves get a little bit of insight here. Exodus 21, verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then it shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. He says, the, the master could say, you're free. You let go. You can go now. And he says, no, I don't want to go. I love what I do here. I love you. I want to serve you forever. That means that Lord, must have, our master, must have treated him very well, right? And uh, here it goes back to the law, which says, okay, uh, there is a time whenever slaves are to be set free, but if they want to continue on, they can, and then they would have their ear pierced, and you'd have an earring in there that says, I'm going to serve my master forever. And that's uh, what that meant. And that's what Paul is relating this to also. I'm serving Christ forever. What a position it is. I'm a slave. You say that to a lot of people today and they would get upset. They don't want to be thinking of themselves as being slaves. They want to have free will to do whatever they want to do. Right? That's the problem with mankind. They want to be able to do what they want to do. Not caring about anybody else or God. Okay. James, a bondservant, do us, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now James says that. And here it just says bondservants of Christ Jesus. If you're a bondservant of Christ Jesus, you're actually a bondservant of God. Christ is God. Paul was always a slave to Christ. Now, interesting. We're in the Roman Empire at this time, right? Caesar. Caesar. King. King of the Empire. Everybody serves or is underneath the Caesar. Matter of fact, Caesar is Lord. 
And that terminology was really hard for Christians to say. And if they didn't say it, they'd probably lose their lives. And that's why a lot of Christians were persecuted and killed early in the early days of their Roman Empire. Because they couldn't admit that Caesar was Lord. And I hope that would be the, the same way in the sense that, no, there's only one Lord. And uh, so when Paul says that, hey, I'm in jail, but even Caesar can't hold me here if God wants me to be somewhere else. And if God wants me to be here, well, that's just fine. Because that's where I've been put. And so he will use me here. Caesar doesn't have anything to say about it, really. He might give orders for certain things, but it's only a reflection that the Lord of the universe, the absolute master, has control of all of this. And we're really underneath him. Isn't that great to know? No matter how bad our leaders can be, they can be pretty bad, can't they? In our time, probably the history of this nation, we're probably under the worst leadership this nation has ever known. But even though we do a Romans 13 as being submissive to the government, but when the time comes that we cannot worship our God, we will not worship the government or the leaders. We'll continue to worship only God. And uh, they can't shut our mouths, can they? And if they try to, then we'll, uh, we'll be in a better place. Or we know... Uh, it's dangerous. When you submit to the master of the universe, it's very dangerous. Quite a calling. Because he might uh, call you to do things that is not always comfortable. It goes against the grain of this nation, this world. And so when you submit to this lordship, it changes your life. You start looking at things a lot differently. Uh, Anyway, Paul could have said, I'm in, I'm in jail here. There are rats running all around. They give me this piece of stale bread. It's got mold all over it. And that's all I get to eat for the rest of the day. Lord, I've never been in a more miserable place in, in all my life. But your Lord, your Lord, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, knowing he's, he's in jail. He said, your plan for me, I know your plan is going to glorify you. And I'm not a victim of this world. I'm a slave of the Messiah. Lord, I'm not a victim of this world at all. Lord, that you be glorified. Christ Jesus, he says, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Now, why didn't he say Jesus Christ? Because that's his first and last name, right? Jesus Christ? No. In fact, he does have a new name. Philippians will tell us about in chapter 2. It's Lord. Jesus is Lord. But, yeah, he has a name, Jesus. But he starts with Christ here. Why would Paul say Christ Jesus this time when he could say Jesus Christ? Is there any difference? Maybe you're nitpicking, Dennis. You're going too far. He can just interchange. Well, when Christ comes first, it's speaking Him as the Messiah, right? Christos, or Mashiach in the Hebrew. Christ. He's the exalted one, the anointed one. He's the one who emptied Himself. He came from heaven 
to earth here. Now Messiah, that's what He was in glory. Before He came here, He was in full glorious array. He was the pre-existent one in heaven. But He emptied Himself, Philippians 2 says. And He humbled Himself and came to earth as the Lord Jesus. Still fully God. Still fully man. But yet He limited Himself to be like us. So there's a condescension here when we speak of the Messiah being in that high, lofty position that He was to become despised and rejected of men. So that's kind of what happened. He he was exalted. Uh, When it's Christ Jesus, it speaks of Jesus also as being the Savior. And we know there's the exalted one, but there's the Savior who came in the flesh. How He is despised. So Christ Jesus speaks of His grace coming from heaven to earth, speaks of His glory, how this one who was despised and downtrodden is now exalted. Christ Jesus. He wants the Philippians to know that the Lord was humbled. And when you look at James and Peter and John, when they write of him, they mention him as Jesus Christ. Here it is, Paul writing to the Philippians. Peter, James, and John knew Jesus here on earth. They knew Him as that one that was Savior. He takes our sins away. They knew Him as man. They also knew Him as Lord, but they emphasized that. How did Paul first get to know Him? The Lord had already been exalted. Christ was that glorious King. He was in heaven. It was a heavenly Christ. That's why I think we see so many times when Paul writes in his epistles, Christ Jesus. When we get to chapter 2, it's kind of like the Magna Carta of what humility is all about. Kind of the heart of the Gospel. And we see that Christ is Lord. Lord over all. That's how we need to think of ourselves, as slaves to this great Lord. Now, in a letter, we have realized who this uh, is talking about as far as writing this, slaves. And he says it's to the saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So it's the whole church. Hagias means set apart, means to be separated. Um, he's not writing to just a select certain group of people who were unique and extraordinary and they had great roles in the church and they were holy people. Just certain people within the congregation. It's a whole congregation to every one of them. All the ones who are believers. All the ones who have been set apart all the ones who have been made holy, all the ones who are uniquely treasured people, your saints. You ever thought of yourself as being treasured by God? Being set apart. We are holy ones. Wow. 
you believe in Christ. You're holy. So, when He chose you, that's what He chose you for. So that you would be holy. To be like Christ. That's what He saved you for. That you could have a relationship with Him. That you'd have fellowship with Him. That you'd have communion with Him. Because you've been set apart. And that's why you can go right up to the throne room. You have been set apart. You have been made holy. Into the presence of the holy. You can say, well, sometimes I don't feel like that. I feel dirty. I feel sinful. Well, that's why He gives us, in this life, the opportunity to confess our sins. And we have sanctification. But at the same time, we have that great privilege of going to Him. Now, some people, and I'm not going to take too much time on this, when they think of a saint, what do they think of? The medals, the statues, all those particularly holy people that are interceding for people on earth today. Because they had enough holiness that it keeps on extending out. So therefore, Christ's work was not good enough. It's up to those saints to help get people in. So you pray to saints. It almost makes them like gods, doesn't it? They're canonized. They're lifted up above other people. One little boy said this, What are saints? Well, they're the dead people that you put up on the church wall to keep the light from coming through. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of truth to that. More truth than maybe we like to admit. Sometimes we're called saints and we're a little more than dead people who keep the light from coming through. That little boy said. Acts 9, verse 13. This is Paul calling people in the church saints again. 9, 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Now there's Ananias saying, your saints at Jerusalem where he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. That's a saint. Call on the name of Christ. Verse 32. Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. That's a pretty good word, isn't it? And I think a lot of times we refrain from calling each other saints because it sounds like a high holy term. It's going to be misunderstood. But that's really what we are. We're saints. You know what? There's really only two kinds of people. The saints and the I remember when the New Orleans Saints football team had some really lean years. Really bad years. And there would be these guys put their paper sacks over their head and punch holes in them where their eyes were you could see through there and then they were called the Aints. Who are who are some of the Saints? Lydia? Remember her? Remember the Philippian jailer? Maybe the slave girl with the demons? They were the saints. They're the believers there. Now, the saints in Christ Jesus. you got to like that. In Christ Jesus. Who are in Philippi. Including the overseers and deacons. So they're included on this. This is just saying everybody, all the church, the, the whole congregation. And uh, you have these overseers 
or episkopos, episcope, uh, to oversee. That's what uh, a leader in a church is. A pastor is the same as episkopos. We get uh, the term today for episcopalian, where they would have uh, overseers or bishops. Bishops are overseers, different areas. You also get um, pastor in the New Testament, and they're the same as overseers. Poiman, it means a shepherd. So you have one who oversees the church, or he's also one who feeds the sheep. And another one is uh, uh, elder. And you'll see that term in the New Testament. And uh, that would be presbyteros, which we get our English word Presbyterian, uh, who believe in multiple elders. We believe that too. They're the same as a shepherd or a pastor, a bishop, overseer. All the same thing. Uh, when you go to First Timothy, for instance, Paul writes a letter. He gives qualifications to anybody who takes leadership in the church as a pastor. First Timothy three one. It is a trustworthy statement. He says, examine this. This is really true. (laughs) If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer must be above reproach. And then he gives all the qualifications here. He says, and, and by the way, it is men who are the ones that are supposed to be the pastors, the elders, bishops, not the women, but it's if any man desires that. If we move over to, um, I think, Titus. Verse 5, chapter 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, husband or one wife, and there's the the, uh, qualifications for an elder there. This time he's known as an elder. Uh, This would be the presbyteros. So we've seen bishop, which is overseer. We've seen presbyteros, which is elder. And sometimes you'll see the word pastor. Those are pastoral letters, Timothy and Titus. Anyway, moving on. Including the overseers and deacons. Now, deacons are not elders, or the word for pastor. All those are the same thing. Pastor, elder, bishop. That's really the same. One and the same. Deacons is another thing. Deacons are not um, the leaders in the church that make the decisions, but they are ones who are seen in a role of ministering, serving in a way that um, the church uses their gifts. Certain men and even women, we see deaconesses even mentioned, 
And they're, they're simply servants, ministers. Diakonos. We get our word deacon from that. So he says, you have the pastors, and you have the deacons, and you have all the people. That's really what makes up the church and, and the leadership and the, the serving and such. One more verse. Verse 2. Not to be overlooked. It's a greetings here. So we've seen the slaves, the saints. I call this the greetings, but salutation might go along with that those S words there. <laughs> what do they say? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. You know, Paul desires the best for these guys. And so as he writes, he loves them so much that they would continue to experience the grace of God. And they will if they're open up to, to his word. He says, grace to you. That's unmerited. Unmerited favor. It, it's undeserved favor. Getting something you don't even deserve. A gift of God. Right. Grace. Charis. Gift. Gift is something that you don't work for or you buy. Now, the Roman person would be connected with a letter and they'd have some kind of a greeting and it would be like greetings to you rather than grace to you. So they set up the letter like it would normally be, but they change it a little bit. A little tweak there. Which would you rather have? Greetings? Or would you rather have grace? We really love grace. We saw that uh, movie last night. Grace card. Boy, you know, that was a good example of what grace really is. It was grace in action by uh, humans, by mankind. Once we have the grace of God here, we also can practice grace on people who don't necessarily deserve it. So, he changes a simple sentiment here of wanting the people to have happiness to this grace and this peace. And you have peace, it's the outflow of grace. You can't have peace until you have that grace that has happened to you. Once you have this unmerited favor that God has put upon you, not deserving at all, then what comes out of that is peace. Look at the situation you're in. You can say, I'm at peace with God. I'm no longer in any war with Him. We're getting to the real theme of what this whole letter is about anyway. When you think about grace and peace, that connects with joy, doesn't it? Because you realize what He's done. He's teaching them here. He's instructing them that they need grace. They constantly need the grace of God. And it's only by grace that we can have the joy of peace. Love, joy, peace. Right? There's our patience. So, Peace is the outcome uh, that there has been a reconciliation. God has reconciled us to Him through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting, this time instead of saying Christ Jesus, He says, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Total well-being from this Lord. And that's what Paul wishes on them. Because of God's grace, they received peace from God. 
I ask you this morning, do you feel like you have peace with God? Right? That's quite a greetings. We know our source. The, the grace, the peace, comes from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we can take joy in the life that we live. It may not always be the hand that we would love to have been dealt with, but this is where we're at in this time. And we can rejoice because God has all this under control. He is the Lord. Isn't it good to know that?